Dead, a podcast about a story of survival. Hello and welcome to episode 50 of We're Not Dead, the official community podcast of We're Alive. I'm your host this week, Nick Voodoo. I am joined by Jordan, a.k.a. on the forum, Wristbreaker23, correct? Yep, that's me. Good, I got the number right. What's up, guys? Um, would you prefer to be called Jordan or Risk Breaker? Um, you know, either it doesn't really matter. <laughs> I'm gonna You'll see me with... on the Facebook page as Jordan, so. Yeah, we'll go with Jordan. That's actually where I see you more often nowadays. I remember we, we've mentioned some of your posts on the podcast before, uh, both as Jordan and as Risk Breaker. Uh, I don't think I ever, I'm not sure I ever put the two together. Um, otherwise I probably would have said Jordan, aka Risk Breaker. Um, so Jordan, how did you come to find, uh, we're alive? Um, well, I noticed there's like one of two different people. Um, either they come here from Greg Miller uh-huh. or they just randomly type zombies in the search bar on iTunes and Zoom and that I was the latter. So yeah, right. That's how I found it too. Um, so how long have you been listening? When did you pick up with the story? Were you here from the beginning or when did you fall in? Um, I think I listen to like the chapter right before the end of the first season finale so all right so you've been you you've been doing the weekly grind for a pretty long time then. yeah actually and i work like a, a production job and uh it's like long hour shifts like 12 hours and mm-hmm. sometimes it can get a little boring so that's the perfect time to listen to where live so i've probably gone through the show like at least a dozen times um i'm sorry what kind of work uh it was a production work like i, I make polarizers and they go into projector units okay well that's cool um something that we're alive will never be able to use projection um <laughs> damn there sorry casey i keep trying to get you hooked up with production people i got a production person on and it's the wrong kind of production i'm sorry man um <laughs> well so we do actually go. make polarizers for the 3d movies so oh okay so that, when we're alive as close as you're gonna get <laughs> <laughs> when we're live gets turned into a 3D movie, hey, we know who to call. <laughs> um, so, who is your favorite character in the We're Alive universe? Um, I'm gonna have to say it's sort of a toss between Bert and Saul. Okay. That's kind of the usual par for the course, right there. Uh, Everyone what, loves Bert. What about Bert? Uh, other than his general awesomeness, what um, specifically about Bert turned you on to Bert in the first place? Well, my brother was a Marine, so Bert totally reminds me of my brother. Okay. Um, and so, Saul, for the same sort of reason, just like cool army guy or something else? Well, I don't know. I, he, Saul just kind of knows what to do, or I guess he's just really lucky. Like, I don't know. He just okay. uh, kind of makes um, the right decisions. And so, those are your favorites. Who is your least favorite? Um, You know, that's kind of a hard one because I hate Scratch. I love to hate Scratch, actually. Okay. She's the. Uh, She's scratched. <laughs> so you, you like the the fullness of the villainous character, which makes you hate her even more because yes. she's so well-defined and you just hate the character, but you love the fact that she's so villainously awesome. Yeah, and she's just evil. So um, so uh, what would be your favorite episode? You came in right around the war, so is the war your favorite or something else that is all, your all-time favorite episode or uh, chapter? 
the war is actually my favorite. It gives me goosebumps every time. It's it's intense. So yeah, you know, I gotta the war is definitely excellent, but I gotta say the the episode we just went through and the one we just had was really kind of awesome too. Yeah, um, chapter what was this chapter thirty four thirty four. Yeah. yeah, the whole chapter's been great. Absolutely. I, I love the entire chapter. Just for some reason, this this specific part, to me, just was really, really well done. Be it, like, I don't know if it was the music that really got me going, like, you know, the, the military drum background, you know, whatever the case may be, this had me on the edge of my seat the entire time I was listening to it. I had a blast re-listening to it to put together the uh, re- uh, the, the chapter review, so... Let's get into the chapter review, and then we have a lot to talk about, so we'll just dive right in. Okay. December 18th. Almost 24 hours after detonation, and the refugees from Boulder started trickling in. Most of those who came in first were people who found their own way here, through the back routes and roads out of the city. Puck announces a small group of 10 survivors have arrived and they are going to keep opening up more housing. Kimmon asks how long until the main group arrives. He's told not long. Carl has a list of names of the survivor. Michael's, Michael asks to see the list. There's about 1,200 survivors and Puck says the base can handle that many. Kimmon wants checkpoints set up, uh, checkpoints to check everyone as they arrive. Carl says they don't have the medical staff to handle that many people. Kimmon yells at Carl to get out there because he's one of them being the uh, medical staff people. Puck reminds him of Tanya and asks if she should be released as she's experienced and might know better what to look for. Poor Carl gets called you again and is told to escort Tanya out to the checkpoint. Puck goes to Michael to see if he's excited about Tanya, but Michael is bummed that none of his tower friends are on the list. Puck says there are more coming on the list that might not, and that list might not be accurate. Kimmet orders Michael to go home and get some rest as he's been there a long time. Puck says to give him the names of uh, the people he wants to look for and he'll keep an eye out for them and call him by radio. Hey, I got a cat nap a few hours ago. I'll keep an eye out. All right, Sarge? Just write their names down. Michael is pissed. They left, and uh, Puck reminds him they, they chose, chose to. to. Michael leaves and runs into Riley, who's flipping her shit. She wonders where their friends are, and Michael simply says they aren't on the list. Michael says more people will be arriving soon, and she'll be needed at her post in the kitchen. Which Riley that doesn't list care. is impressive that they could get 1,200 names just on the list, like so definitively. Well, you know, that's one of the things, like, military is really, really good at, because obviously when you get into, like, you know, a combat situation and, like, your battalion gets busted up or whatever, and you know, I'm so talking from, like, I've seen this in a Hollywood movie once. I don't know from experience. Um, well, you know and, I mean? and just knowing KC, they, they probably have some sort of, like, system, of, you know, some sort of, like, ID number to quickly check, you know, yeah, population. Like, and, you know, line up in a line. Give me your name. Where are you from? Go over here now. So, I, I, you know, it's the military. They're really, really good at this sort of thing in terms of, like, organizing an order. So that's how they got the 1,200 so quickly and so apparently accurately. Yeah. Um, let's see. Michael doesn't even know where in the city that Pegs and Kelly were. He might uh, know better if they survived if he did know that. Um, they try to find comfort in the fact that their friends could be among the stragglers who are coming in and unaccounted for. Riley says, yeah, they know what they're doing. Datu immediately responds, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Hope again offers to help look at the map, but Datu doesn't want her to hurt her eyes. He says they could almost be there, but he thought they would have seen others by now. 
Datu passes a sign saying Newberry, 15 miles, and takes out a map as an indicator alarm goes off in the car. Hope asks, what's that noise? And it's been going off a lot. What's that? It keeps doing that. Well, there's not so much fuel. I just love the way that Jay said fuel. Uh, yeah, I caught that too. The fuel. Fuel. It was like fuel. Yeah. Two separate words. It was funny. Um, <laughs> Hope asks how much they have left. Datu says, hopefully more than he thinks. He was hoping to get to the, ne- to the next town to get more gas in the car and the tanks. Just then they pass a, a vacant Hummer. And then they promptly run out of gas. Hope says it's okay because they can siphon gas off of another car. But there aren't any around. Hope enters Super Saiyan bitch teenager mode um, and asks a series of annoying hindsight is twenty twenty questions. Datsu snaps back at her and makes her hold the rope again. You act like I drive all the time. I don't. And I know that. You're supposed to be the mechanic. Don't get started on me. Datu narrates uh, finding the vacant Hummer in the ditch. Hope asks if they can use the fuel, but it's diesel, so they can't use it in their car. Datu finds some random rounds in the Hummer, but otherwise the Hummer is abandoned and dead. The battery is drained and the radio is non-functional. Datu finds them on a map and realizes they are not far from Irwin. He hopes that they can call Irwin so they can come pick him up. I'm sorry, them up. That's the second time I did that. I typed it up and I wrote him and I was like, no, no, there's two of them. Yeah. Uh, I am subconsciously trying to kill Hope by leaving yeah, her Yeah, just forget Hope. Screw, screw the blind girl. What could she possibly do? She's not blind anymore, so I guess she can do something. Um, he asks Hope to go get uh, the spare batteries out of the car. She says she'll get right on that as Datu has forgotten she's blind again. Um, just then, gunshots and explosions are heard in the distance. Datu can't see where it's happening, but he knows it's close. Hope wants to find another car, but Datu hasn't seen one for miles. Hope says to take the radio with him, but it's bolted into the Hummer. He says he can do this. He just needs a few minutes because he is Datu, the resourceful. Uh, and we are back in the command center at Irwin. Michael is bursting in to find all hell on Earth is breaking out again. There's a firefight in the main body of the survivors, which has grown in size as others have met up with them. Michael gives the Casey obligatory, wants you to notice, but immediately forget, what? Kimmet asks how far off they are, and they should send a response team. Turners are in the main uh, body of the survivors, and Kimmet loses his shit. He blames the people checking the survivors. He blames Michael for delaying the detonation of Boulder. Uh, Michael says he was trying to save lives. Kimmet says so is he. Michael says, basically, the fuck ever, dude. I'm going out to help them. I'll relay what I see in the air. I'm not done with you. Well, I am. Cross. Cross! And he gets in the black off with Robbins and team, and they are in the air, following the 40. Robbins asks how bad it was, and Michael says that's what they're going to find out. He asks what they're packing and is told they have Hydra's, the Blackhawk zombie shredder gun. Uh, and he's got an M4. Robbins laughs and says they won't hit shit with that from the air. Michael says they might not be always in the air. Robbins says it won't come to that. They arrive on the scene of an absolute massacre. Below there was a tangle of cars and military vehicles. The military was trying to fight against wave after wave of attackers. Other cars were scattering in absolutely all directions. Robbins fires into the crowd. Michael tells him to be careful of unturned people. Kimmet calls, and Michael tells Robbins to talk to him. Which, I'm, I don't know if it was just me... When he said, you talk to him, did it sound like Michael sounded like Kimmet to you? Or was it just me? We got the room. We can pick up stragglers, right? Kimmet's on the line. You talk to him. Sir, the convoys are... Uh, I didn't catch it, so... Okay. Um, it might have been just you. Okay. <laughs> well, 
fine, I'm crazy. It's it, it for a second the first time I went through and heard it was like you talked to him. I was like, but Kimmit, you are talk uh, whatever. Doesn't matter. I'm just insane. Loo dee doo. Uh, Robin says the convoy is full of turners. Kimmit gives the order to destroy them. Pilot says they will hit the center of the mass with the hydras. Michael says no, but to no avail as the first rocket is launched, followed closely by number two and three. There's a few pockets of hostiles up here. Take them out. Damn it, listen to me. That's not effective. You're going to hit people. He's right. You're just making it worse. Michael says all they're doing is scattering them further. Michael gets Kimmit on the line and Kimmit ignores him. Robin agrees with Michael that this tactic isn't working, but the pilot finds another pocket, and Kimmett says, Take them out. More rockets are fired under Michael's increased protest. Robbins again agrees with Michael, but the douchebag pilot mentions the cars full of people heading to Irwin, and Kimmett says to consider them as hostile and to engage all targets. Michael says you can't kill them all. Michael wants to stop them from leading the Inklings to Fort Irwin, but Michael says it is too late and they're already going to go there. Kimmett finally relents and orders them back to base and to reinforce all their defenses. Michael wants to land and save others, but Robin says it's not an option. Puck calls, saying there's a call on the radio for Michael, and lo, King Dot to the Resourceful has found a way to power up the radio. Where are you? Michael! We were... Just, just, uh, just tell me where. Who's with you? On the 40, right outside of Newberry. And it's Hovenite. Where's everyone else? Pegs and Kelly. I don't know. Michael asks uh, who he's with, and he says Hope. He tells Michael where they are and realizes that he is in the direct path of the Inklings on the way to Irwin. They find Datu and Hope and pick them up. They take off just as Inklings show up, and Robin sh Robbins shreds them. Datu wonder what happened. Michael tells him they brought everyone back here and one turn. That's all it took. Michael asks about Pegs and Kelly. Datu doesn't know. There's a lot of chatter on the Irwin radio, and everyone is getting into position for the fight. Datu says they have tanks and shit, right? This time Michael responds with, yes. This time, we do. Michael returns to the command to find Kimmett losing his mind. Slightly. He nervously is ordering tanks into canyons to create kill zones. Michael asks how long do they have. Inklings are only about 60 miles from Fort Irwin. Michael says the cars should be showing up anytime soon. Puck says more stragglers too have shown up, but no one was on Michael's list. Just Datu who is being checked out. Kimmett calls Michael over. He asks uh, about the Cody. Michael says they still have one, and Kimmett wants it loaded into the back of the Blackhawk. Michael says it's too big, and only the Pelican could take it. He then realizes that Datu's here now, and he might be able to get it to work again. Datu the Resourceful. King Datu the Resourceful fixes all things mechanical. Gunshots are heard over the radio. The zombies have reached checkpoints 1 and 2. Kimmett then gives the order to engage at will. And then there's a moment of silence where you could think that the episode is over. And then the satellite phone begins to ring. Puck asks someone to get it. Kimmett asks who still has a sat phone. Michael says he has no idea. Michael answers it and says, Hello, this is Fort Irwin Command. Hello, this is Fort Irwin Command. What's the number? Who is it? Check the readout. Wait. That's not right. Who is it? It's the team we sent to L.A. Blackout. Dun-dun-dun-dun. Dun-dun-dun. Jordan. What were your yeah. impressions of the episode? Well, I mean, it, like we talked about before, it was just a great chapter. Um, I think the ending with the sat phone, I just, it had been so long since we'd been with Saul that I almost completely forgot about the sat phone. And I was thinking, are the zombies smart enough to call them and like mess with them? And, <laughs> and then I was like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> this is the greatest <laughs> prank call ever. But at this point, I'm thinking, I don't know. 
Casey does just does not give it to us easy. I at this point it I don't know if it's safe to say that could be Saul. I'm wondering if it might be like Scratch or someone. Yeah, the, there's obviously there's the two biggest theories going around, and let's just jump right into this headlong because it's the biggest mystery of this chapter. Yeah, uh, is who's on the other end of this phone call? I posted um, this to Twitter. I put it on the Facebook page. It's obviously all over the forum, you know, by itself. Uh, who's who's on the other end of the phone call? Um, the, you know, there's people saying, well, if it was Saul, then of course there would have been an immediate response. Well, if it's Scratch, you'd be screwing with them and that sort of thing. So those are the two main ones. Is everyone thinks it's either Saul or Scratch? There's a lot. There's also a fair amount of people that say, oh, it's the one with the markings. He found a way to fix the phone and call himself, which I think is a little bit out there. For now, at least. So that was my initial. He had a hard time. That was my initial it. idea, but I, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's either Scratch or Saul. Yeah, I mean, if nothing else, you have to eliminate the one with the markings just on the fact that he had a problem entering in the code on the door after being told what it was at the tower. So the odds of him being able to finally solder something back together probably in the realm of not possible. Well, and, and the odds of him being interested in a sat phone enough to call a number. Oh, yeah, well, there's also that, too. Um, which, you stop with your logic. That's just way too logical. Stop it. <laughs> um, so let's actually do this a little out of order. Usually we get to Twitter a little bit later. Um, well, let's go to Twitter first. Uh, Pike Paw, our favorite Canadian. Um, my instinct says Saul. I hear his voice in my mind, but I so badly want it for to be Pete. Um, so Pete was another option, but uh, yeah, I don't think it's Pete. Um, Luke underscore J underscore Walker. If it were Scratch, I think we would have heard it in the last part of this episode. Kind of like, better start running. She might even just be shocked to hear Michael's voice on the other end. It could be a shock. I, there's also the option that the phone was beyond repair. You can make a phone call in the hopes that you could get the attention back to LA and that someone might go investigate it, but the handset itself was broken, so you can't talk into it. You can only hear. If it's Saul, I'm betting that's that's what's going on. Yeah, and if it's Scratch, then I have a thought on that, and we'll get to that in a little bit. Yeah. Um, the lurking at the lurking one says it's Saul, Lizzie, and Victor. Uh, Brady underscore LAD. I'd be shocked if it was anyone other than Saul. Scratch wasn't aware that they came for the sat phone. Hashtag no brainer. Uh, okay. Uh, the herd at the herd 19, the zombie with all the tattoos. Um, Dustin underscore Taylor. I think it's the Maulers. Jago thinks it's Jago 1818 thinks it's Saul. Um, let's see. Sea Thief UK, suited zombie guy. Um, yeah, so again, this is a whole lot of Saul and Scratch. Saul and Scratch. Saul and, Saul and Scratch, that's pretty much it. Now, of course, it's going to end up being someone like... It's going to be Pete. Uh, it's going to be Skittles. Skittles! <laughs> ah, I haven't done that in a few months. That felt good to get back to. Yeah. Um, so again, there's that's the huge, huge debate. Now, I don't know that I agree that if it was Scratch, we would have heard from her now. Because I'm not sure... What do you think would be more impactful to you? To hear Scratch and know that she has the sat phone, or to hear nothing and wonder who has, this, and wonder who has the sat phone? Uh, definitely the latter. Definitely uh, wondering who has the sat phone. Um, you know, part of me just does not believe it's Scratch, because 
I don't know how any more any more stuff can go down before this season finale. And if it's Scratch, then it's then Michael's distracted by that one more thing. He's got Inklings coming on him. He's he's got to go rescue Scratch and Lizzie at the same time. Um, right. Just having Saul there, you can tell that this is the point where the two storylines are going to converge again. Yeah, it's, this is definitely a converging point. It makes a lot of sense, um, and a lot of people also posted this in the forum as a as a prediction for where we're going next. That uh, we're going to end up back at the colony and get the resolution to that story. Well, and and, and, and it's a classic. It, it's sort of a classic maneuver for We're Alive so far. I mean, season two, it was sort of like, you know, by the point of going to the hospital and getting the pelican and getting the the two helicopters in order, it was like, where are we going with this? And then and then the episode before the season finale hits and it's like I don't think anyone could have I don't know of anyone that actually accurately predicted that season finale being the way it, it did which kind of makes the show really exciting to listen to yeah and I, no one no one no one guessed the tower was going away well that's not true I think someone did guess the tower was going away but I don't know if they guessed how um, so yeah, I feel like it's safe to say that we're probably going to go find out what's happened because, you know, now we're at December 18th. You know, Casey very specifically said December 18th. We have now been 24 hours since we blew up uh, Boulder. Uh, so we know that we are now two days ahead of where the colony was. So we have two days worth of story that we can get at the colony to make our stories match back up again. Um, so there's that. Um, I wonder I wonder what the chances are of having the season finale take place on Christmas or Christmas Eve or something. I don't know that that'd be that would be a really long time from where they are now. Yeah, I guess uh, especially like knowing. Yeah, I mean, we're if we're at the 18th and we're, you know, a, a pretty decent chunk away from Christmas even, especially with Inklings coming down and they're only 60 miles away and you know they're not in Boulder anymore in Colorado where it's snowy and crappy. Yeah, you know, they have a straight shot here that should take them. Not too, too much time. I just wondered, too, because the season finale was on July 4th, which was kind of kind of cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's something about holidays that brings out the zombie in us. Yeah, apparently. Um, so from the forum, Witch Doctor, uh, Datu and Hope are closer to Fort Irwin than the colony. I think someone called this. Good call on Datu and the Pelican. 24 hours with Turners in the convoy. Were they hiding in trunks or under vehicles? Slow Turners? Something else? Kimmet isn't experienced with this sort of combat operation. Michael's on Kimmet's shit list. Sounds like Kimmet has a score to settle with Michael now. Will Kimmet threaten Tanya now that she's freed? Punish Michael? Abandon Hope? See what I did there? Uh, <laughs> yes, we did. It was brilliant. I saw what you um, did there. We definitely saw what you did there. Um, so yeah, there's there's a lot. Now, the relationship with Michael and Kimmet has obviously taken an absolute nosedive. Um, well, it really showed how just ineffective of, of a leader that Kimmet is. The first yeah. thing he did was blame uh, Michael, and it was like, what kind of a leader? Like, when the shit hits the fan, they turn around and blame the first person well, they see. That that's definitely something that was brought up in the forum is that Kimmet is a terrible leader. As a matter of fact, uh, let me see who did this. Uh, posted. Oh wow, this was really deep into this. Uh, yet another bloody cheek posted two uh, four dummies books. Um, leadership for dummies and communicating effectively for dummies. I think someone needs to get Kimmet both of these. Um, so, yeah, uh, Kim is on people's shit list right now. Um, but yeah, their relationship definitely took a nosedive. But the interesting thing is that he still listens to Michael. And he still takes his advice. So that's actually a really solid sign of a leader, is that even though they have personal friction between them, 
Yes, granted, he launched seven Hydra missiles or something like that into a crowd of people and caused the problem to be worse. But he did eventually listen, and then he listened to Michael's advice about, you know, calling off the attack on the people that were coming back to them and checking them out the way that they should be in the first place and, you know, let's shore up our defenses and get people guns and let's go make this happen. Yeah, well, and that's just one virtue that he has, but... I mean, I was even thinking, like, in this in this kind of world where every life is precious because there's just not a lot of people left, he was just really quick to drop that nuke and shoot into a bunch of people. And... Yeah, and, you know, it's, it's rough because, like I said in last week's episode with Alex, um, the longer I sit with the idea that he dropped the bomb on Boulder, the more it sits okay in my head. I'm okay that he did it. Personally, I think it's okay that he did it. There yeah, was well, and, it, the, and it's the, understandable, and it, it's a difficult decision for anyone yes. to make. Um, that's not a decision that anyone wants to make, obviously. Yeah, but I understood why he, why he did it, you know. Yeah, the, once he allowed Michael that window of opportunity to get people out, that's when I was okay with it. If he had just dropped it, okay, no, I don't have a problem. I have, I have an absolute problem with that because... You know, the city center is one place, and then there's a whole bunch of people north of that or south of that or wherever they were that weren't necessarily being affected immediately by this that had the chance to get out, and you were not going to give them the option. You were just going to blow them up. That's when I had a problem. But by giving at least giving them that window of opportunity to escape, to me, that made it a little more palatable to blow up the rest of the city. On the flip side of that, though, if he had dropped the bomb, then uh, hope would probably be gone. Okay, well, there is always the fact that it, you know, Hope would not have survived your nuclear blast, <laughs> but then King Datu, the resourceful. Well, she no, didn't he didn't annoy me away. until this chapter. So, I I still we'll get we'll get to Hope because I have an email that concerns Hope very specifically, <laughs> uh, and Hope really generally got a pass on the forums because everyone was very much focused on who has the phone and um, how the Turner came to be. Um, Western Wisdom from the forum, I've seriously been thinking that Tanya will turn at the worst possible time, possibly infecting everyone that survived the initial turner and probably giving the rest of the season a real downer ending. The whole immune family is just too convenient after all. I think, it, after all, it only takes one. So, where do you fall on the Tanya as a slow turner, at this point a severely slow turner? Uh, do you think she turns, or do you think that she might be the key to immunity? Um, you know, that's a tough one because I haven't really given Tanya a whole lot of thought, but I, I definitely don't think she's a Turner. I think she, whatever it was, I just, I mean, I don't think it goes that slow, but what do I know? <laughs> you know about as much as any of uh, anyone else that listens to it. You know, we, I could eat no my idea. words, but I'm going to say, no, she's, she's immune. I don't know if she's immune, but. Whatever it is, she didn't. She didn't catch it. Right. Um, yeah. I. I at one point had not given any thought to it. And I still don't haven't given too much thought to it because I, I don't know what I think about the immunity theory. But you know, she did get bit. See, and I, and I'm in the same boat as you. And I I also just haven't been really been giving Tanya a whole lot of thought just because so much other stuff is going on that I'm really like Michael's arm. I'm still wondering about that. <laughs> Uh, that's going to be, like, something that, like, Pegs and Michael are trapped in, like, some bunker somewhere, like, right at the end of the series. And it's just like, how did you break that arm? And then he's going to tell the story or something. 
which, by the way, I'm in the camp that Kelly and Pegs are alive. Yeah, I am um, too. I just I don't see them dying that way. Well, to me, Peg still serves another purpose. Uh, Kelly, I'm not so sure. Kelly may be alive just to come back to die. Who knows? Um, but I definitely believe that Peg's is alive because she still has her overarching purpose in my head for Scratch and the other part of the story. Uh, Liam Carrington... Yeah, that's true, but I mean, the last time I said something like that, like, this person is not dead. Angel died, so... <laughs> Thank you for that. Thank you for cursing him. <laughs> you and Angel, I actually, I actually liked him. Not as much as Wraith, but I liked no, him. Well, no one likes him as much as Wraith. Um, I feel like my Angel hate may have become just a little bit too irrational lately. So I think I might need to cut back on it. Um, Liam Carrington, I started to like Kimmet. Uh, weeks ago, I was pretty angry with him. Uh, what a leader, so jumpy and stuff. But after all, after he is jumpy, he actually listens to the sense being talked to him by Michael. Isn't that what a good leader does? Um, and I guess we pretty much covered that part already, that uh, he still does listen to people, even though he's not necessarily in his right mind and someone else and i apologize i did not take the screenshot of this one um someone else still says that um you know kenneth can get as mad as he wants and michael as much as he wants for as long as he wants and as loud as he wants michael still has a trump card and the trump card is that kimmet is the reason this all happened because kimmet is the one that sent the helicopter to boulder instead of the forward operating base of Irwin, like he was supposed to so if he ever decides to piss off michael again he'd just be like this is all your fault I don't know that Michael will ever do that to him, though. He's yeah. Nice. Michael is pretty nice. nice for being a military guy and being in this kind of world. <laughs> yeah. Nice guy to finish last. So he should toughen up or something. Um, <clears throat> Hardcore uh, is responding to what's post. I'm starting to really get confused about the one is and it only takes one. I'm starting to think it could be about one nuke, one day, one bite, or one bad call. Uh, Hardcore's response was, that's the beauty of it. All of them are good meanings. The obvious, meaning, the obvious meaning is that it only takes one zombie to cause an outbreak, but all the options you mentioned with this could fit the title. I think that this episode's title, because you, we all know that Casey likes to have his double meanings to titles, this might be the most versatile title that I think he's ever come up with. Yeah, I, I agree to that. I think it means all of the above. All right. Um, Epi Epe, um, who's relatively new, and I'm not sure we've mentioned you on the podcast hello and welcome to the forum and the community uh yes my guess is that uh call is going to create a whole lot of conflict obviously we're talking with the sad phone call uh michael will be torn between trying to find a way to save whoever is left of saul lizzie bird victor etc to and trying to find uh pegs and kelly i think the call is also going to spur a lot more conflict between kim and michael as kim probably wants michael to allocate out other doesn't want to allocate out any other resources especially with his current opinion of michael uh, great episode. My heart was pounding the whole time, especially with the drums going on, which is what I was talking about with the music being one of the reasons I really liked the episode. Oh, yeah. Um, the music was great. Yeah, the music was just... The, especially when you get the those the interludes between scenes. Oh, yeah. Phenom- it was a phenomenal choice. Um, so, do you, do you think that Michael's going to end up being pulled between Pegs and finding Pegs and Kelly and saving the LA people, or do you think that he's going to end up focusing entirely on one problem well and see here we go back to the sat phone because i i think michael is just uh, he's a guy that's very focused on what is going on in the moment and uh and i think that sat phone is going to be the other thing that michael's going to have to focus on with the inklings coming to fort Irwin. um I, I think pegs and kelly will be a distant third in his mind 
I mean, I'm even, not sure that he can put Pegs and Kelly out that way. What and I'm I'm spitballing this here, and if this was, again posted as a theory, again, uh, forum members, I do apologize. I've been a lot better about naming names recently. There was so much information and so many nice long posts that I end up skipping a lot of them. So if you posted this theory and I'm stealing it now, it's not personal. Um, but f Michael knowing that the colony exists and getting that call from L.A. Uh, may go to investigate that as an option. And that just to get himself out of the, the Irwin environment and say, oh, hey, there might be this really, really great place that we can now go to. Now this place, Irwin, is overrun. And we can blow Irwin up and kill all these zombies, and then we'll just be back to square one in L.A. with the same problems we had before. Oh, yeah, that's actually a great idea. Um, I didn't quite think about it that way. And, and that would uh, definitely make a pattern of always having the season finale end with the Maulers. Right, and and because, again, like I still feel like the Maulers are still a very important part of the story. They're not going to be the thing that we end with. They're going to be close to the ending, and I know this one was Cabbage Patch. I think that Scratch survives. He said uh, in one of his posts that um, Scratch survives to the very end of like the last episode, but she's not the last scene. She's still all the way up there until then, though. Um, so again, the Maulers are really, really important. Still, the zombies are definitely an important part of this. It's the entire vehicle. It's the it's the way that we are telling the story. Um, and again, this this I know I'm stealing verbatim from someone, but I can't remember the name, and I apologize. Um, the zombies are the vehicle, and the maulers are the passenger to the story. So they're very important to that. Um, Devilish Pizza. God damn it, Casey, why must you make me wait another two weeks after an episode like that? It is easily this. It will easily be the hardest two weeks of my post-war live life. You are a horrible, sadistic man, and seriously, a pox upon the person who decided to try and go with the convoy after being scratched. I believe that these inklings can only turn people by scratching them, as Tanya pointed out, as with their seemingly useless teeth. So, okay, so we have the number two uh, inkling that was autopsied, which could very well be originally a child. We could, we didn't know how old it was. We couldn't tell the maturity level. It could either have been a really, you know, not busty woman, or it could have been a little child because it had no hair and blah 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 blah. Um, so, what would you think of the inklings, the, like the number two inkling, which had the teeth falling out, versus a fully grown a fully grown adult being turned into a zombie like that? Would they pick up those falling out teeth trait, or would they keep their own traits and have like solid teeth, something like that? I don't know. That's pretty interesting. I haven't really given a thought a lot of thought into the inklings. Um... But, yeah, I mean, solid teeth sounds good to me. So, like, which would you, if you had if you had your druthers and you were the one writing this story, with this framework that has been installed into it, if you could turn, say, I don't know, a 25-year-old male into an inkling, would he then make it, what, what characteristics would you want him to have as your zombie attacker? They have pretty gnarly claws, don't they? Yeah, they have they have those really wickedly long nails. Yeah, I mean that's really sharp. That's too. pretty deadly, right there. Reminds me of like, wasn't it on Left for Dead? The uh, the witch have like really wicked claws or something. I think I played that game once. Yeah, I, I honestly have not played that game because I was 
in the wrong generation console at the wrong time. Well, I mean, and that's that's kind of a common theme in other horror themes is, is you know something with really wicked claws, and they always just seem far more deadly to me. But they're not the traditional biting zombie, right? No, because obviously the biters are that's that's their basic function is they bite and that's how they turn you and that's how they eat you and you know it seems like the inklings or the advanced little ones or the little ones or whatever you feel like calling them that seems like a trait that they apparently are missing is that they can't bite is that they can gum you to death or they can stab you obviously with their nails but you know they they don't seem to have the basic zombie trait of biting to pass the disease or the virus or uh, the radiation or what you know, what have you, they they seem to lack that. So maybe that is very true. Maybe the only way they can pass whatever it is is through the nails. Yeah, we definitely need more information on these inklings because it's they're getting kind of interesting, especially with no teeth. Yeah, if if that trait is consistent through all the inklings, like if we get another dead one that Tanya can take a look at and be like, oh, the teeth are in there. Okay, we have a bit more information, so maybe that one really, number two really was a young one, uh, and, you know, this one that we've just killed and we found was an adult, so it kept its adult traits. Um, let's see here. Iceman Travis. Okay, I might get an earful for saying this, but I don't like how things are going uh, so far for the humans. Don't get me wrong, I love the story and the writing done by KC so far. Uh, an issue I'm having right now is that I don't see any chance for us to win. With pretty much all of the USA gone dark and the last place for humanity gone and Irwin, uh, and Irwin's possibly about to fall, I don't see an ending that will end positively. And I don't mean like sunshines and rainbows and happy, but just, I mean, oh my god, we just barely won, but it's going to take forever for us to get back to how we were. It's all starting to get really depressing and I feel like I'm starting to listen to the slow but fatal extinction of humanity. I still feel like listening to the end, but I fear what will be waiting for us at the end of this road. So. Well... And that's what kind of makes the show rather interesting. It's um, you you guys always talk about The Walking Dead, so I assume you watch it, right? I'm sorry, say again. The Walking Dead, you watch it, right? Um, I am behind, but yes, I do. I'm up with the comics, though. It's it's exactly the same type of idea. It's just that uh, I always call I always say that Casey is sort of sadistic, and I really believe that he is because. Uh, he just likes putting these characters through the most terrible stuff. It's kind of like the yeah. uh, the writer of the Walking Dead comics. He says the same mm-hmm. thing. It's it's putting these characters through horrific stuff it, and seeing how they how they respond. It's it, the writer of that of the comics actually says like he almost kind of wants to see almost as if he's a reader and wants to see what will happen. Boulder Refugee uh, says, maybe Ink found Glenn, and he makes the phone call and listens, and as Michael gives away their position, just in time to come lead his army of super little ones. Let the seizure of Irwin begin. Just as the battle reaches a climax, we're to three chapters of dialogue, free adventures of Mr. Whiskers catching rats in the ruins of the tower. Brilliant. Yeah. Anyway. Oh, Mr. Whiskers. People keep... I, I sometimes go on the forums, and people keep asking about Mr. Whiskers. People want to know what happened to the animals. And it's a justifiable thing. I, what happened to Marcus's dogs? I want to know. <laughs> yeah. um, they were this is one of my posts, and um, this was just a just a general question um, that I had thought of because everyone was talking about the phone got fixed by Glenn, and it's got to be solid. And this got to be this, got to be this. Um, 
And I was shocked that no one had suggested that TARDIS was a potential fixture of the phone. Um, he's good with the radios, after all, and he's much closer to the two necessary pieces than Glenn, potentially. I didn't put the potentially. I'm putting that in there now. Um, and which prompted a gigantic debate as to who has the phone now. Um, so, in your opinion, where we left the colony as it was, who do you think had the sat phone? Where do you think it's located right now? Is it with Saul and CJ at the colony? Is it with Glenn back at the Dunbar safe house? I, I just have a strong feeling that it's with Saul. I don't know why. Um, I, I'm not as good in, on the predictions as you are. Oh, don't worry. If you ask anyone, they, they'll just say that I'm not good at predictions either. But I've gotten some right, but I'm, I'm feeling like Saul. Yeah, you know, I, I did it more as like an exercise to say I think that Saul has it, because then that makes it easy and convenient for TARDIS to get it and uh, to fix it. Um, I don't necessarily know that's true. I just feel like there's a lot that would have to happen in potentially as little as 36 hours, because we're talking when December 18th rolled. We, we left the colony in the evening of the 16th, which means that on the morning of the 18th, when we pick up the story at Irwin for this chapter part, that's 36 hours. That's a lot that has to happen in 36 hours, including the resolution of the conflict, get, finding the shack, finding the parts, doing whatever else we have to do at the colony in order to make it so we're possibly able to leave to go get Glenn, get the phone fixed, make a phone call. That's why I was suggesting that maybe it possibly makes sense that Tardus is the one that fixes the phone. Yeah, well, and it's a good idea, and it's also a good idea that um, Scratch has it. You know, a lot, like you said, a lot has happened in 36 hours, but a lot could happen in 36 hours, so... It's... it's you know, 36 hours is not just a lot of time to get accomplished everything. I don't know. It's hard. Yeah. Um, Bullethead. And this is probably my favorite post in this. There's like 22 pages right now of posts. Uh, and we're recording this on a Wednesday night. Um, so Bullethead's post is Michael listens in. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you're looking for ransom, I can tell you I don't have money. What I do have is a particular set of skills. Skills I've acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my pegs go now, that'll be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you. And I will kill you. Michael's Liam Neeson. Okay. (laughs) Knowing what Jim Gleeson generally looks like and kind of sounds, I can see Liam Neeson playing the role of Michael at some point. That would be interesting and fun. That would be pretty um, good. Uh, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, I I would like I obviously want I want Jim Gleason to play if we ever move this out of the radio drama. I want Jim Gleason to play Michael. Uh, if Jim was unable to do it and uh, uh, and Liam Neeson was, I'd, I'd be okay with that. I think I'd have to be okay with that. Yeah, I would too. I'd say that's a pretty good trade off if uh, Jim can't do it. Um, Bullethead also had another post. Um, the moment Michael responds with his name at, and a location was an absolute red flag for me. Not once in this entire show has he just handed out information like that. And Cabbage Patch responded, I found that a little jarring. In most of the earlier sat phone conversations, the Fort Irwin end started the call with a challenge, looking for a password response. Even in the heat of battle for Boulder, the person answering the phone was circumspect in how they answered the line. Now suddenly, Michael is a chatterbox? Which I agree, that... It's not something that actually hit me immediately, but upon listening to it again, I was like, oh, even Carl, lowly little Carl, 
knew the call and response password system, and, and Michael just abandoned it for because he was thrown off guard by the fact that no one else should have a sat phone that's alive. Yeah, that was. Uh, I, I can see that, but I can also see where it's, it's the situation that um, I mean, maybe it's Pegs on the other line, maybe it's one of his friends, you know, um, maybe it's some sort of help coming. So I could see where he's sort of desperate to get a hold oh. of them, but. Yeah, I could see where, where Michael is supposed to be this, uh, this, uh, intelligence, uh, military intelligence, and he just sort of dropped the ball in that minute. Yeah, you know, that's not something that actually even occurred to me was that he could consider it coming from someone from Boulder. I, I never even crossed my mind because obviously we all know that there's a sat phone in LA and they're trying to get it fixed. It just never occurred to me. Oh, yeah, by the way, huh, um, yeah, it could be someone from Boulder. That might be why he thought. It would be okay. Yeah, it could have even been reinforcements um, or something. Right. Witch Doctor again. Story-wise, I doubt it's scratched on the phone. If so, then why would then what would have made a more gut-wrenching cliffhanger than just uh, the phone ringing? Um, we, we've already pretty much discussed oh, that. Oh, yeah. Privateer, I think that just maybe the sad phone is broken. If it was Saul or Victor calling, they would have jumped at the voice of Michael. Scratch might be playing, because that's what Scratch does. But I've already given... Uh, Gave love in the forums for why I think it's silly Scratch would be able to pull this off. Uh, it could be CJ arguing with others and herself about uh, whether or not she stand, wants to lose her autonomy to the army. Um, let's see. Uh, Privateer loved the bickering. Thought that uh, there was some high tensile military drama. Was still a little bit confused about the thought process of the advanced little ones or inklings. If they maintain higher thought process, why only strategic thinking and not ethics or loyalty? So if they do retain their higher brain function like we have been theorizing, uh, why, why just go on the killing binge that they go on? Is that something that you think that zombies think about? I don't know if they really do have higher brain functions. Um, I think they, this whole time they've been more animalistic, and it, it could really just... I kind of was thinking today it might have been instincts. The morals and loyalty and ethics is not something I ever really attributed to because, if nothing else, the basic understanding of what a zombie is, even in the most basic sense, is it is a body that is not in Like what Casey said on the interview, it's a body that is not in control of itself. The person doesn't have control anymore. So if the zombies in We're Alive don't have control of their bodies... That means that basically they are just free and clear of their morals and ethics. They don't have to be moral. They don't have to be ethical because it's just not a problem for them. So I guess that would be my answer to that would be that's why they don't keep their morals or whatever is because they're not really in control of their bodies. And if they're not in control of their bodies, they go back to and revert to maybe their animal instincts of, uh, you know, kill prey and Well, yeah, and I... Perfectly agree with that, and, and also, we, I mean, we wouldn't really have a story if they had higher brain functions, and you could uh, communicate with them and reason with them, and um, you know, it's part of the story that makes it exciting. Is that this is a uh, this is an enemy that um, I don't know if you've ever read the book World War Z, but they they mention in the not. book how our all of our military tactics are designed around shock and awe. Well, what if you? have an enemy that can't be shocked and awed, like biologically and physically cannot be shocked and awed. Um, they just keep coming. It's, it's, they're the only things capable of total war. And that's kind of what scares me about zombies is 
they just keep coming and they won't stop. That's definitely part of it. I mean, I, I, the thing that freaks me out most about zombies is, and it's something I've, I've touched on a little more recently with the idea that the story has to start turning towards this, is the futility of survival. You know what I mean? Like, no matter what happens, no matter how hard you try, no matter how hard you fight, the futility of surviving the zombie apocalypse just is a huge wave of emotion. And that's what always hits me most with zombie stories is you can fight for your survival all you want. Something's going to get you eventually. It's just a matter of when, and it's going to be horrible when it does. Oh, yeah. Uh, all right. A couple of emails. So we're getting towards the end of our little podcast this week. Um, from Alex. Hey, Britt, Nick, and any guests. Since the most recent chapter, my mind has been buzzing about different ways in which the tactical nuke located beneath the army base can be used uh, to modify the narrative. Um, I have two theories about how the nuke at Irwin can be used to further the narrative in some way. First theory and main prediction of when and how that nuke will be used relates to the traps Irwin was testing a few episodes ago, the Cody's. Uh, if a few shrieks and a bottle of sweat can attract a mob of zombies, couldn't a significantly louder noise and stronger scent bring more in? If the remaining colony members and those left on Irwin use some kind of air raid siren, found a way to amplify the smell of sweat, they could get everything prepared to leave, turn up the siren, drive to a safe place, and detonate the nuke via sat foam. This would be a clear, this would clear a majority of the zombies from the area and allow them uh, for a safer escape to what I would assume to be the Mauler colony, because we haven't resolved that conflict yet, and happened to what happened to Victor and crew and Lizzie. Someone had brought up uh, in some post at some point. That they're not sure that it was a sat phone that set the um, the nuke off. It may have to be a landline. So that could be a, an issue with that theory. Otherwise, um, I think that's actually a pretty decent way to to set off. You know, set off both guns that are hanging on the mantle. We have one that's gone off. We have one more that's got to get shot. That seems like a pretty reasonable re- way to use it. Yeah, to me, that's a really smart way to do. It. I didn't even think about that. So that's a great idea. I mean, it's, it's, can it? got his head out of his butt, maybe he'd think about that. <laughs> he just lost his niece. Give him a break. Yeah, okay. And he probably has, and he probably hasn't had a drink in hours. <laughs> um, uh, so continuing with this email from Alex, the other use of the new in uh, progressing the narrative would be uh, probably be a catastrophic attack occurred and they had no choice but to evacuate whoever possible and detonate the nuke. Um, much prefer the other idea, and I kind of agree. Because we just pretty much did that with Irwin, or, or not Irwin, Boulder, was get everyone out as much as you can and let's just blow it up. We we just played that card. I think we have to do something a little different. Yeah. So instead of a defensive move, I feel like an offensive move with the nuke would be a nice touch. Oh yeah, it would be. I, I kind of like that idea. Um, Deanna Merrill, I just wanted to put my two cents in. As a mother of a 16-year-old daughter, I told you we were going to get to hope. Uh, I have never smacked my child in any way. However... If she acted like Hope in Chapter 34 of We're Alive, pretty much at any point I would smack her upside her head. I would not feel bad about it. Uh, And I would not feel bad about it. Okay, I would probably feel bad about it later. But I would still deem it as necessary. I would like to think that... uh, I would like to uh, thank Nick and the podcast. I have shared this chapter with my daughter and let her know that if we are in the apocalypse trying to survive, this is not the way to act. And if she would like to not get smacked upside the head, then she won't act that way. She laughed, but hopefully I got the message across. 
In all seriousness, thank you for the podcast. I love to listen and get your perspective, especially when it turns out that Nick has been totally wrong in his theories. Please keep up the great work. Uh, and that's from uh, Deanna. And yes, a lot of people love it when I fall on my face, and that's perfectly okay because, um, you know, that's the entire point is to put myself out there and hopefully give you a laugh. So cool. Some news and notes around the We're Alive universe. Uh, if you were unaware, Mr. Jim Gleason uh, got married recently. So, yay, Jim yay, Gleason. Yay, Jim Gleason. Congratulations to you and uh, your wife. Uh, the pictures online looked uh, absolutely lovely, so thank you for that. Uh, thank you for that. Congratulations for that. Excuse me, I moved ahead to my next thing I was thinking of. Um, so I mentioned a while ago that there was a journal competition. It ended just before the 100th episode of We're Alive, um, and that contest is obviously closed, um, and we are finishing and finalizing our results uh, this weekend, and we will be announcing the winner on next week's podcast, yes, I did say next week's podcast, because we are going to have an interview with the one, the only, Constance Parn, who, by the way, plays CJ. So we're going to be talking to CJ next week on We're Alive. Hopefully Britt will be here uh, for that. If not, it will be me and hopefully Bees or, you know, someone uh, else to not just to have me asking questions. Yeah, hopefully someone else um, is there. I know. Who wants to listen to that voodoo guy? He's just... <laughs> Such a prick. Um, so yeah, I'm gonna post a th I'm gonna post a thread um, on the forum, also on Facebook. Uh, ask questions on Twitter. If you have questions for CJ, uh, send them to uh, WND Podcast on Twitter. You can send it to us on Facebook. Um, we have our email is we're not dead podcast at gmail.com. Send me all your questions. I will read as many of them as humanly possible. Uh, to CJ, so if you have a question for CJ, who, by the way, is Casey's favorite character, just remember that. That's kind of a cool little caveat. Wow, I didn't know that. Um, you know, ask those questions. And we will also be announcing the winner of the contest on the podcast next week. So tune in for that. The only other thing I really think I need to cover in terms of forum-y things is with the new redesign and relaunch of the website, um, we have... Available, if you are interested, um, article writers for the main page at zombiepodcast.com. Not slash forum, just zombiepodcast.com. Um, so if you want to write articles, which basically, you know, like think blog posts or news and notes and things like that, head over to zombiepodcast.com slash forum. In the top news section, there is a uh, thread about becoming an article uh, writer for uh, the website. And I think... Well, that just about covers it. Um, Jordan, if the people want to find you on the World Wide Webs, and you feel like giving out that information, where can they find you? Um, so I'm on Xbox Live. I actually got a few We're Live uh, uh, forum members on there, like Comrade Narf, a um, couple others, mm -hmm. uh, Risk Breaker 23, um, also on Zune. I know there's a there's a bunch of Zune uh, users on the forum, so you know I'm always open to people adding me as friends. Um, and then there's, you know, Facebook, if you see me around, you can just say hi, add me as a friend, sure. Uh, what's your last name so people can find you? So it's Levitt, L-E-A-V-I-T-T. -T. Very cool, and you're, you're definitely all over the, fa the, the Facebook, uh, We're Alive and We're Not Dead pages. I see you posting and liking and commenting a lot. Yeah, and so occasionally I'm on the forums, Jordan. but mostly I just, I just lurk on the forums. Yeah. We... We we miss you on the forums. Yeah, I should go on there Post. more. I was kind of checking it out today um, before recording this podcast. I could 
kind of catch up on what people were saying and yeah it again the forum's fun we have a good time there um again there's a chat box casey's there um if you like hanging out and talking to um uh otto stark he is always on the forum he's always making cool comments always almost always in character so he's always talking uh to you as um as Victor. Well, that, so that that's right there is the best reason um, to, so, to be a fan of We're Live is even on the Facebook page, you're constantly talking to KC or, or, or uh, the, you know, Bert and all those other actors and actresses that play their characters. It, that's pretty awesome. Yep. Yeah, it's definitely cool. So if you want a chance to interact with uh, the cast members again, check out We're Live on Facebook. Check us out on the forum. Um, and I think that pretty much does it. Jordan, thank you for coming on. I appreciate you being Thanks here. Thanks for having me. Episode 50. Anytime. Episode 50. We're old. And it's one of those things that, like, you know, this podcast started in, you know, January of 2011. So, you know, that's been almost 104 weeks or so if you round <laughs> up. And we just hit episode 50. Um, so I feel suddenly very inadequate. And, um, yeah, on that awkward note. Jordan, thank you for being here. Thank you. Uh, for Bees at Beesball and for Britt, who hopefully will be back next week for the interview with Constance, I'm Nick Voodoo, and we're out. <laughs>